0: Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. It's time to celebrate this messy decade and to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end, because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by the exuberant Jovan Miller. Jovi is a motivator, teacher and prominent athlete with a natural talent that many envy, but many more admire. He first found his passion for lacrosse midway through his senior year of high school. Gripped by the pace, physicality and exhilarating nature of the game, Jovi continued to play throughout his 20s. While studying at Syracuse University, Jovi played in the Major Lacrosse League for four years, became national champion in 2008 and 2009 and was named at the All Big East Conference First Team for two consecutive seasons. But lacrosse wasn't the only love of Jovi's life. He's also a dedicated student with a thirst for knowledge and passing on his wisdom to the next generation. After studying two Bachelor of Science degrees in the US, in his mid-twenties, Jovi ventured across the pond to study for an MA at Loughborough Uni. Shaking British people with his authenticity, brutal honesty and intimate wisdom, it's no surprise that he made some amazing connections here and was looked up to by all. After travelling Europe, Jovi moved back to the States. Though continuing to play lacrosse, he encountered multiple personal and professional highs and lows, but tackled them with the same dedication that he always showed on the field. Now, JV works as a teacher and uses his social media platform to inspire, inform and instigate discussions on societal issues of the present. From vocalising his concerns and working towards a better future for minority groups in lacrosse, to raising awareness of the Black Lives Matter movement and sports politics in his brilliant podcast, Give It Context. I've met very few people in my life who have the ability to captivate the attention of a room through just one look in the way that Jovi can. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to him today because every conversation we've ever had, I've come away feeling inspired, reflective, intrigued, and always with a massive smile on my face. Mr. Miller, welcome to 20 Not Something.
1: I am, wow, what an intro, man. That was, Woo. That was awesome. How are you, pretty <laughs> lady? <laughs> I'm
0: feeling really good. Thank you. I'm feeling that Friday feeling. How about you?
1: Same, miss. Well, it feels like the days are running together now, right?
0: <laughs> I know it's been ages since I've seen your face. I'm so happy we're doing this.
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah. Well, it's, well, it's been over, has it been two years now?
0: Yeah, two 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 and a half, maybe, I think. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe longer. Yeah, it it's been a while. I <laughs> so I thought I'd start off with the same question I ask everyone um so getting sort of back to your teenage years looking into the 20s decade what was the one thing that you wanted
1: other than probably money um I would probably say a form of acceptance because those adolescent years are so weird when it comes to figuring yourself out um regardless of what you, uh, whatever endeavor you think you want to get into, it's more or less the, the acceptance that comes a part of um, your bigger picture. And I felt like for me, it was just some form of acceptance, whether that be becoming a teacher or a professional athlete, that, that uh, the level of acceptance, I think, was what I really desired more than anything.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Did you find that that acceptance came when you found lacrosse?
1: Um, I feel like it, it it was from sports period. Um, Mm. I actually, I I played American football or padded rugby as y'all call it. Um, (laughs) and I actually, I started playing, uh, American football when I was four years old and, um, you know, I didn't stop playing until I was 18. Of course I chose to play lacrosse, but my version of acceptance really did come through athletics in some, in some form. Most of it was really based off of the relationships that I had made, whether they had been considered superficial at the time or long lasting, that was my form of acceptance because I could do something um, as a big as one small portion of a bigger piece that made me feel that that uh, form of camaraderie and that acceptance. Um, so I think sports in general, um, let alone whether I play lacrosse or football.
0: Mm. Was there a distinctive moment that you can remember where you sort of went down the lacrosse path instead of the football? Or did one just sort of come to you more naturally?
1: I felt like my um my last year of secondary school, uh high school, um, I had a I had a, a spat with my um, with my football coach, um, my football manager. And it just it it just turned me off. I, I was getting recruited to play both um both football and lacrosse in college, uh, but in this particular case, we just had a we had a really bad falling out. in some of the phone calls that I was getting before, I wasn't getting anymore. But the intrigue of playing lacrosse was still there, and I still felt like I had some more to offer. That I, there were still things I was I was getting better at and improving on, and I want to see how far playing the sport of lacrosse would take me. So I chose the lacrosse route.
0: Mm. Did you enjoy playing it at? Well, you call it college. Our version of uni.
1: Uni, right? Uh, did I, Well, winning is fun. <laughs> you know. So, so um, I guess you could say, in my case, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. We lost eight times in four years. So, wow. Um, when you are a part of something that is that successful, uh, it is very fun. But at the same time, I think that there's a level of loneliness. And I think that that's really what I'm kind of starting to share with the world now. But a lot of my, you know, uh, my endeavors at that time were really based off of success playing and not really me, the human being. And I felt like that was the part that I kind of missed from uh, playing in uni as much as we won. That was the thing I think that was not that fun. Um, and that's figuring oneself out when you're in the uni ages.
0: Yeah, for sure. What what sort of motivated you back then? Because I think you know when we're we're at uni or college, as you call it, um, you know, there's so many distractions. <laughs> whether right. it's like relationships or you know, right, right. That, that sort of thing. How did you, you know, continue to focus your energies on on being like the best athlete you could be?
1: Oh, uh, I think. Um, I, was, I was humbled by the idea that my parents really did sacrifice a lot for me to mm. even start playing lacrosse, let alone they transferred me to another school um, because there was a lot of racial issues at the public school that I was at. So um, I felt like when they gave me the opportunity, when all these things were uh, starting to roll out for me, um, when I got to Syracuse, it was I can't fail because they put too much in because there's been too many sacrifices made for me. And and I, I felt like my way of at least paying that back in some regard was my, was my play was, you know, my being a, a scholar in the, in the classroom. So I think for me, the, the pushing factor was honestly fear of failure. I literally mm-hmm. was afraid to fail because I realized how much my parents had, um, indebted to me. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really lovely. Did you find that lacrosse was like a, a safe haven for you in that respect of like, you know, you were doing something that you, you loved and it was there to sort of catch you almost?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I know for me, like, I never drank or smoked. And I think that um, when you have a lot of, whether it be positive or negative emotions, you need somewhere to put them. And sometimes that might be uh, a positive thing. In some people's cases, it might be getting a drink. In my case, it was a coloring book. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Or it was, you know what I mean? Reading a book or something. But my negative inhibitions, for the most part, I needed something that I could literally, like, just get it out of my system. And playing lacrosse was a way for me. It was a, yeah, it was a refuse in some cases. But it also was, unfortunately, it was a distraction and it, it sometimes you realize that distraction is kind of preventing you from addressing whatever the issue is and and facing it face to face and and trying to do something about it
0: mm. you you touched on it briefly there but you have never you know drunk or dabbled or drugs or anything like that um and you've said that you know you never will um right. I'm just curious as to, you know, where that decision came from. Was it, was it something that you decided to do, you know, from a young age or did you see the effect it had on other people and that sort of influenced that decision?
1: Um, I have a, um, I have an older brother and my brother was a very highly rated um, athlete as well, but he wasn't committed. He wasn't as committed. Um, he I feel like he could have definitely been um, a true inspiration uh, you know, for me to look at from regards to his success, but unfortunately it was the opposite. It was because of his failures, and it had nothing to do with that. He wasn't talented enough. It had to do with uh, drinking. and he, he never said he had a drinking problem, but the amount of times where he should have maybe been training or something like that, he'd rather go out and party. Uh, I made a commitment to myself uh, at a young age. And I just said that if I don't make it and if I'm not successful as an athlete, it's not gonna be because um I didn't train enough or I didn't drink or you know what I mean, or because I drank or something like that. It was gonna be because I just wasn't good enough. And that's why my commitment to just and after you get to I think it's like I just became uninterested in trying it after a certain age. You know what I'm saying? When you get past like the easier completely the easier times where it's available when you get past those moments when you're in your youth it's very easy to say no as you get older.
0: Mm. yeah i guess if you've never done it you don't really like have the urge to you know
1: urge, you- right No. of course i've thought about it but i was like at the same time I, I was like i was on at that time especially when i entered uni i was on an 18 year you know uh clean streak you know mm. i didn't want to break my streak you know, so I just said I'm just not gonna partake in it at any point. Yeah. Fair
0: play, fair play. So then, I guess moving through, you're both so two degrees. Um, what prompted your decision to stay in education after your first um, bachelor of science degree?
1: Um, my my first bachelor's. Well, usually when you do anything. From a humanitarian standpoint, you're never going to get the credit that you rightfully deserve. That's just a part of the occupation, whether you be a social worker, whether you be a teacher, um, you know, a family counselor, anything like that, any of those uh, professions, you're never going to get your just due. You're always going to feel like you're underpaid. Um, I felt like for me, um, I just wanted to keep learning. And there was a number of things, I kind of just fell into the opportunity for some of these things was um, I was working at a uni, uh, I was coaching at a uni, and because I was uh, on staff, you get to take classes for free. Um, I, it was the first time in my, in my life that I had not been um, in some form of uni. <laughs> so I felt like um, I didn't know what to do with the time, so I just started casually taking classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to this one class was about ethics and ethics and sports, about ethics and sport value. And, uh, right after that, I kid you not, I fully registered, took four classes and I became a full-time student again. So (laughs) just me and academia, like, I, I, I don't know, man. I don't know.
0: <laughs> but it's good. I feel like it's so important to just keep learning. And I think right. you know when we get to the end of our, if anyone who goes to you know your college, will get to the end of their three or four years and feel like oh god, I've got to I've got to move on to do something else now. And I think right. it does actually take quite a lot of courage to be like actually I'm not done learning yet. I want to I want to see what else can I can fill in this little brain. So yeah, right. I rate that. <laughs> Did you find um, coming over to England was that quite a, an adjustment? Or did you feel like it was slotting quite easy?
1: <laughs> Honestly, um, I came. I, I'm not boasting about this, but I came with the right intention when I came to England. My, I'm. My parents have always encouraged my brother and sister um, to to not stay in one place or explore the world, or go see it, or find your home. Is how my mother always said it to us. Go find fits you. So, my brother lives in Florida, my sister lives in Texas, and I reside now in North Carolina, but um, I'm up in New York with my mother. Um, but for the most part, I've always been curious. I had a, a list that I had written down when I was still in uni of places I wanted to go visit and I wanted to go see for myself. Um, and those were all places that were international. There were a whole bunch of places I said, I want to see what the world is like and I'm completely outside of my own comfort zone. So for me, everything that I I went in there with no expectation, I just Mm -hmm. let England be England and just (laughs) be, you know what I'm saying? And um, The adjustment period was, I I wouldn't say it was rough. Everything I I learned was, wow, that's pretty interesting. That's cool. That's cool. But my heart, you know, was in it for the reason of i want to hear i want to learn how they how the british live as opposed Mm. to how american lives so i never came into it comparing and contrasting what it was like as opposed to america somebody asked me about what it's like living in america of course i would share that but for the most part it was all about being mind blown from just the culture And so for me, it wasn't a tough adjustment. The only, I think the toughest adjustment really was honestly just uh, the lingo, (laughs) just the lingo. I mean, other than that, you know, and and so many people are being asked probably every two seconds, you know, am I American? Um, And I was like, yeah, and then the normal casual conversation. But I love that because, you know, we do that to British people all the time when (laughs) we hear a person with an accent. Of course, all those same questions go. So yeah, it was it was it was a huge part. Of it, but no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was a rough a rough transition. I loved it.
0: That's good. That's good. I remember before you came to Loughborough, actually, the boys were watching. Um, obviously, so excited for you to come over, and they were watching your highlight reel on YouTube. Right. <laughs> and there was a. <laughs> There was a moment when you scored a goal from behind the goal. Now, I don't know how many of our listeners know lacrosse, but you can go behind the goal, but it's fucking impossible. It's so impossible to score from behind it. Like there is no (laughs) idea. And this guy just, (laughs) Jovi just slings it in and they absolutely went wild. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, this might be quite a difficult question, but when did you sort of realize that you had that sort of ability in you to compete at that top level? You know, like, and did you expect to get to where you are?
1: No, I mean, which is why I think it's it's just important that you don't just have a you don't just play and leave it at you just play. Um, there's got to be some your story is going to inspire somebody else's. and I feel like that's I feel like for me, realizing I had the ability I, I don't know when it kind of struck for me because I I felt like I was surprising myself each time. Something happened. But again, I didn't go into it like I'm the best player out there. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was being encouraged by the right people who they told me what I mean, I had coaches, I had um you know, I had teammates that they were telling me what I need to know, not what I want to hear. And between that, each time I got to a, a point where okay, now I've made this team, I've been rated this high, this school's calling me, this ability. I was surprising myself each time. So mm. when I started playing professionally, I mean, it's everybody's dream, but but again, I, I was of course that's an aspiration, but the most important thing was to make sure that they understood for me was that I am incredibly humbled. I was incredibly mm. humbled by being there and I didn't expect to be there. I just knew given opportunity that I would just, you know, make the most of it.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your mum? Hi, Miss Miller <laughs> um, so then I guess moving back to the states um to pursue teaching um how did you find the sort of i mean you'd obviously coached before right because you coached right. at charlotte um right. and I guess having been coached by some of the best in in the u s um did you find that that was a quite Fulfilling it in a way to to be able to pass on what you'd learned to people, or did you find the coaching quite tough?
1: uh co- Are you talking about coaching in in the UK or coaching back in America?
0: Oh, is there a, is there a difference? Is it Huge. very different? Oh, okay.
1: Let's go uh, for America. <laughs> America, the game is introduced. It's not it for the most part. A lot of people know what the game is already. Mm. They've already had some uh, resemblance of playing it almost like football over in the UK or in Europe. Everybody knows what, you know, what the sport is, but as far as, you know, somebody being in a, um, in a, in a youth system or something like that, that's different. Um, but I, just the attitude of the kid, um, when I, when I was in England, because it's still new, you know, it's, on growing, it's growing and, and growing. I felt like everybody was much more hip to learning. And mm-hmm. uh, that was the, the hardest thing is to go back to the States. And honestly, um, as my friends uh, can attest, Mike Bartlett and Sam Russell can attest to, um, I did not want to move back to America. Really? I did not want to move back to America. I, I wanted to stay in England. Um, the The issue for me... The biggest problem, unfortunately, came down to, um, it was my visa. You know, the visa situation at the time, I had a student visa and I wanted to get a working visa. And then I was talking about how much it was going to cost. And then a few complications because my visa didn't run out until a certain time. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out um, the way I wanted it to. But I they, they can attest, I did everything in my power to try to stay in England. Um, and that wasn't just to coach, I was to teach
0: that must have been so like just hard to sort of deal with like it visas are just so fucking annoying i just think like if you yeah. want to live somewhere you That's should just right. be able to move there like what is right. this deal with like i mean obviously it's for a reason but yeah that must have because it's so out of your control as well like
1: i i feel like um there's some there's still some bitter feelings between england and <laughs> in, in america uh <laughs> over over, maybe the Revolutionary War, I don't know. But something about Americans wanting to stay there, you know, wanting to stay in the country, they give us a really hard time. Um, but, uh, no, but in all seriousness, I, I just felt like, for me, I embraced the culture in such a way that the culture became... The saddest day, I, I can tell you the day I actually had to come home, it was uh, December 25th, 2016. Yeah, I left on Christmas Day, and uh, that was when I had to pack my bags and go back to America because my visa had ran out. Um, it's one of the saddest days that I've had because I just I did not want to go back to America. I did not.
0: So I guess when you got back then, it was, uh, it was oh, pretty difficult.
1: I was an a-hole to everybody. Really? For, I mean, again, I was unemployed, of course, because you get back over there. You know, I didn't have a job set up or anything. I had the intention of staying until it was like I was gonna stay up until a certain time with the visa and everything and I went to uh the uh, L I spoke with uh the uni in Loughborough a number of times and uh the Loughborough rep had told me that there was no ways as far as me being able to stay in the country under my certain uh, certain visa and everything. It just really, really It it irked me. It angered me. It frustrated me. It saddened me. And I felt like all those emotions when I got back my first month uh, back in America, Mm. I was just, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to anybody. Just leave me alone. Mm.
0: Looking back at that time now, are you grateful that you came back when you did or is it still still a hard hitter?
1: (laughs) It's it's still a hard hitter only because I had an idea of what I'm doing right now in North Carolina, where I, where I reside. Uh, North Carolina is 727 miles away from Syracuse, New York, where I'm from, where I'm right at right now. That's a 10 and a half, 11 hour trip, you know, in, in a, in a vehicle back to where I live. Wow. I had this scale of what I'm doing right now in the city of Charlotte. Um, I want to do the same exact thing in England. I had it all planned out of how my wages were set up and everything. Like I had spoken to um, across the pond people who had helped me, help bring me over. All of that stuff had been orchestrated. And I felt like all I was missing was the, was the visa, was the visa. Mm-hmm. And, and it just didn't work out, man. Um, or it wasn't, it, I'm still a little bitter about it. But it's just, I guess I won't be as bitter when I find out what the bigger plan is, what the what the reason for why it didn't, you know, mm. work out is. So I feel like, you know, everybody's like, you know, when you, for example, if you hate to use this example, but if you're like, I really want to go on that trip or something like that via plane and then that, you missed your flight and that plane crashes, you're going to be like, mm-hmm. man, I really, w- I'm glad I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. rush to get on that plane because mm-hmm. I may not be here. Um, I like I said in the big picture, I'm still trying to figure out exactly, you know, why it didn't work out, but I'm living with the fact that it didn't work out. But I still, you know, my passport is still valid, and I still every time I get a chance, I try to go over to Europe and and see my friends over in England.
0: Mm. Well, we miss you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: you
0: So then, what prompted the uh podcast? give it context because I've been listening to it for a few months now. And I just, I just, I mean, I love listening to your voice to be quite honest, but it, you know, you raised some really, really important topics. Um, was it something you'd planned for a while or? Um...
1: Wow. It was, uh, a lot of the things that I've fallen into have been from a competitive standpoint of, I think I can do that. I would watch a show, or I watch the things I watch daily, and I'd say, I could put. I I think I could eat. I could see myself doing something like that because I watch the cadence. I watch how these people do. I'm like, I think I could actually do that. And uh, with podcast, with a podcast, uh, the amount of information that I was sharing via my Instagram stories or uh, my Twitter feed, it was to the point where I just realized, uh, and it was an it was an idea given to me and i was like hey i might as well run with it let's just let's just do it um but it was more or less about a lot of the relationship between being an athlete and excuse me an athlete having an opinion outside of their sport and i just always drove me crazy how people would always be telling people to stick to their respective sport always drove me crazy because we're still citizens people still have thoughts and ideas and um i just feel like for the next generation uh the biggest problem that we have as adults not teaching to the next uh, to the younger generation is how to think critically mm. and i feel like the podcast was an opportunity to put some of those thoughts into a space where you don't have to watch me on a video you can listen to me uh driving in the car and be like you know what like i want to look further into this or whatever the case is
0: mm. I love that in one of your episodes, you say that, um, you said that in movies that you always root for the bad guy because at least they're channeling some sort of motive and they're sort of sticking up what they believe in, (laughs) even though, even though, yeah, it's kind of going against the grain and stuff. And I just thought that was really interesting, but because you you are so brutally honest, like as a person, and that and I admire that trait in you. And is that something you learn in your twenties? Because I know so many of us sort of we go into our twenties very uncertain, very you know we don't really know what our opinions are. Um, right. Have you always been that sort of like uh, self assured? I guess.
1: Uh, I, I only learned I learned the self being so self assured in my household. Um, I had a mo- my mother and my father are incredibly assertive people. My mother in particular is an incredibly assertive person, uh, whether man or woman. And uh, when she said something, it was more or less, listen, I'd rather just tell you something. And if you don't like it, I can live with the fact that I said it, as opposed to you not liking it. So rather than so many people sugarcoating things, I was much more on on the level of, I'd rather you just be like, man, I didn't like this. Oh, you know what I'm saying, and be able to live with that mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, as opposed to being like I'm not going to say that because it might upset you know Emma and she may not like me anymore. Like I'd rather say it and her be able to just you digest it and be like, yeah, I didn't like that, but at least she said it. So uh, for for me, I think that the stature of being that being that direct came over the course of time. You grow into it. You realize that your opinions and such, and like you said realizing that your your voice does have a little bit has weight and that it has um that people value you know your opinion because it's fair and it might be something they may not uh, agree with but at least they're willing to have a conversation with you over and so for me that's what um I really have stuck to my whole my whole life really um to a certain extent for sure for
0: sure yeah I guess on that topic of honesty, I, I just wanted to bring up the incredible letter that you wrote in 2018 called Dear Lacrosse. Um, for those who haven't read it, it's it's basically a letter to the game. Um, and, and you say that obviously lacrosse has given you so much, um, you know, it's given you your education and your travel. But in the letter, you sort of say how Disappointed you are in its inability to recognise and tackle the the discrimination and prejudice which is obviously embedded in the sport. Um, and it, it's such a powerful piece of writing. Honestly, it really is. I just wondered, like, how long were you working on that letter before you released it? And, and when you did release it, you know what? What was that feeling?
1: Wow, uh, that to be honest with you, Dear Lacrosse, was I I used to write consistently. Uh, I don't write anymore because it was – my parents introduced me to them. My parents bought me two journals before my first year at uni. And my mother had said, you're going to appreciate this. Please use them because you're going to look back on these And – I'm 31 now, but you're going to look back and be like, wow, I used to think like that, you know, 13 years ago. It was crazy I used to think like that. Um, The writing thing with the deal across thing, that was a bad – weekend at lacrosse convention Mm -hmm. and it just came to me i i'm a very matter-of-fact person sometimes it just when it comes to me i just start going and uh i kid you know I, i probably wrote my first draft of that in two hours if that not even and proofread it and had it out and sent it out within sat down and did, it was about a two and a half to three hour project and I was done with it. It was not something I thought about for a really long time. Um, like I said, when it's on my heart to say something, it just goes. It just, it, the words just start flowing and that's what Dear Lacrosse was for me because it was a divide that I felt like nobody was addressing and they were just kind of, uh, you know, we had, we I said hello to Jovan. See, I'm not racist because I said hi to a black guy. and It was like, that's not, mm. you're, not, you're, not getting, you're not getting to the point. You're not getting to, that's not a conversation. You know what mm. I'm saying? Like, that's mm. not addressing it. So I felt like with my stature, who I was in the game and who I still am in the game, I felt like me saying it as opposed to maybe somebody who didn't have the career that I had, it made it more powerful. And I feel like I was just voicing what a lot of people felt. But I just, again, am willing to put it out there. Mm.
0: Do you think that the message has resonated? Because I know in some of your podcasts, you sort of said that, look, even when you started playing, you know, it was known as a white sport, lacrosse, like played by white people. Um, right. Do you think that is changing now? Is the conversation changing?
1: I believe that it's changing. I believe that at the time when I wrote it, because I believe that was in 2018. I still had, we, I'd already been having conversations like this. I had been a part of um, the diversity and inclusion task force uh, since mm-hmm. 2013. I graduated in 2011 from Syracuse university. I'd still been talking about these things. It was the first time I put pen to paper was obviously in 2018 about it, but um, I feel like finally, unfortunately, due to, of uh, the unfortunate act, you know, acts of a few weeks ago um, on Memorial Day uh, here in America of George Floyd, because of the pandemic, is the first time that the world had to sit still. And it's the first time they ever saw what maybe their black brother or sister has been talking about for for centuries. And the fact that they saw it was so uncomfortable and was such a long, drawn out. It wasn't somebody shooting them um, and it's over. It was eight minutes and forty six seconds. I feel like that. Everybody saw that and then they start and then they, they reverted back to the game of lacrosse. Who's been saying this kind of stuff? And it was it's been me for years upon years. So I feel like yes, the, the world is finally changing, the lacrosse world in particular, is finally in a space where they're gonna hear me for who I am and mm-hmm. then they're gonna hear it for it not just being about me, it being about the bigger picture of those who come after me and the kids who come after them. And even, you know, the generation before us.
0: Mm. Well, on behalf of all of your following, I just want to say thank you for, you know, bringing that to our attention and, you know, for your incredibly insightful and interesting videos. You know, I feel like I've learned more on one of your (laughs) IG lives than I did in my entire history GCSE. So (laughs) I want to thank you for that.
1: (sighs) Not a problem. Not a problem.
0: So we're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. Are you ready for your first question? I'm ready. Okay. You are not supposed to accomplish all of your goals. Made up or on the internet?
1: (laughs) I'm going to say on the internet.
0: Yep. That was on the internet. So that was (laughs) written by a guy called Mark Manson, who's an author. Okay. Um, in a blog called Surviving My Twenties. Um, and it was really... I, I, I mean, I, I believe that. I, I don't know about you, but you're not supposed to accomplish all of your goals,
1: yeah? Uh,
0: 1,000%. Yeah. He basically said that... He he talked about the education system a little bit um, and how yeah. it's almost checkbox, and we sort of set ourselves up for failure before we've even stepped yeah. out into the real world because we have this sort of disillusioned perspective of like what's right and wrong and what is a goal, and if you don't reach that, then you failed sort of thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just thought I'd I thought it was a, it was quite a good quote for this one this chat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay so our second one is according to the research the average woman finds her life partner at the age of 25 while for men they're more likely to find their soulmate at 28
1: oh god i'm made up
0: no that was actually posted what
1: oh god (laughs)
0: yeah but wait wait until wait until you hear um the name of the article ready this is the age where you're most likely to meet the one i mean seriously form it
1: (laughs) okay i I guess wow (laughs) i wish
0: the listeners could see your face right now and these expressions yeah
1: I get okay. I guess is what we're doing now. So I guess
0: the average woman finds her life partner at the age of twenty-five. That is so young.
1: Well, okay. I was actually thinking, based on what I've seen, it looks. I thought it was. I thought it was old. Really? I, personally, I mean. So in in my country, for example, and I know maybe it's probably the same in, in the UK, but a lot of people that find their soulmate is in uni so that's why i figured it was Mm. no okay now this is minus the you know 50 percent divorce rate i'm talking about (laughs) getting married you know yeah but but for the most part from from what it looked like to me i'm like a lot of these people end up they date for x amount of time they meet each other maybe their third or fourth year of uni and then they continue dating into adulthood and then all of a sudden you know, they pop, you know, they start living together They pop the question and so Yeah
0: that I, just sense. That, I, 20, I just thought
1: I thought twenty just thought twenty five to me, I thought that was really old. <laughs> Personally, wow.
0: Play. And our final one is I have learned more about the world in my twenties than I did in my thirteen years of education.
1: Oh my god. Somebody said that.
0: Somebody did.
1: So that would not be made up. So that would be, somebody posted that, right? That's what the...
0: No, I I made it up.
1: Oh my God, you just said (laughs) that. I know. (laughs) Oh man.
0: Well, I just thought, I was thinking about it earlier and I was like, I remember bloody like, floodplains and geography and Pythagoras theorem and math and like right do I know what any of it means now like of course I don't like it has no relevance to me you know and right. I just think at school we're sort of taught to regurgitate information instead of actually you know have a critical opinion on it and I just wanted to get your opinion on that sort of as someone who is a teacher um mm-hmm. does that frustrate you about the education system
1: one thousand percent the only reason why we're in this predicament right now is well in America at least um, we have this huge divide on who, what happened. The fact is that all of it happened. It's just that when you, when you're telling, when you tell, when you're learning something in regard to education, a lot of times you have to ask, what in what realm does it apply to actual life? Okay, so mm. when you're talking math, you're talking science, English, whatever. You know, you have to find a correlation of why it's important. But when you teach history, for example, like they're just events and that's
0: what?
1: all they are. Yeah. And because they're just events, you don't understand how it actually applies to your life. But then in a bigger picture standpoint, I'm not basing I'm basing sometimes my reactions to certain things because they're white off of history. Mm-hmm. So or or I'm getting I'm getting a certain energy that is, is very negative because I'm black. And somebody's wife. And that's something that was taught to you um in such a fashion it's hard to shake. But at the same time, that's why you learn from interaction more than anything. You learn from critical thinking. We don't mm. a lot of kids and again like this, whether this age or, or moving forward, it's when you're not thinking in a critical manner, you don't learn anything really. You forget mm-hmm. most. Do you know any trigon? I don't remember anything from my pre-calculus classes, from my trigonometry classes, my eligible classes. I don't remember a lot of that stuff, but I do, I do know like there are certain things that stuck with me only because of the impact mm-hmm. that they had. And those were based off of the critical discussions that I may have had on certain things, certain topics.
0: Yeah. For sure, I also think stories play such an important role in that as well. Like I feel so much more informed and like personally impacted by a story which someone tells me um, instead of like reading a fact out of a a, you know a textbook.
1: Right, right. Um, And that requires again, like when somebody tells you of an experience, like I, I mean, you're passing on pain, as I always, as I've said. So being black in America, like you're passing on pain you're you're literally this happened to them and now I'm gonna tell my son or daughter exactly what happened to me and they're gonna try to find every correlation between what I just told them even though it's 30 years later Mm. and so because you're being taught in in that way it's kind of hard to not redo the cycle but how do you break the cycle um, is you analyze it based on that was their experience at that time and then you couple it with where you are and, and where society is now. Um, which again, I, I feel like when you're misinformed as opposed to uninformed, there's two different mm. you know bands of thinking.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Jovi, for coming on the podcast. <laughs> it's honestly been so great. I could literally chat to you all day. like. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed yourself.
1: Right, I had a splendid time. I hope this is not the last time, but I had an absolute blast.
0: Splendid. You're British already, you see.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank cool. you so much.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jovan. It was so interesting to chat to you as always. If you guys want to check out some more of Jovi's content, you can find him at jovination23 on Instagram and his podcast called Give It Context is on iTunes as well. I can assure you, you will definitely come away having learned something. So do go and check it out. Thank you to the extremely talented composer and producer of this podcast, Pete Hath. And a big thank you to you guys at home for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, then please feel free to leave us a review. We absolutely love reading them and it helps more people find us.
1: We'll see you next week.